Let me open us in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you that you oversee everything that goes on in this world, in this creation of yours. Thank you that there's not one road molecule uh, in all of the cosmos. We can have comfort in that because your wrath has been poured out on Christ in our place. And so when you look to us, you see him and you love us as children. You've adopted us into your family. And so you are our redeemer. You are our savior and you are our Lord. And we submit all of our lives to you. We are not our own, but we were bought at a price. And so we want to serve you. And today we want your help in understanding how you want us to function as followers of Christ, as ambassadors in his kingdom. Uh, in the midst of the civil realm in the nation that you've called us to. In our vocation as citizens here in these United States, how is it that you would have us to live faithfully as ambassadors of Christ? So please teach us today. Help us to grow uh, stronger in our faith. Help us to grow more wise and understanding uh, in your word, through your standard, and help us to live faithfully as we leave here. In Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> All right. So we are on week seven of ten. Finishing out the, the four application lessons calling lived out in our work, in our families, in our church, and today in society. Um, the church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and is marked by certain defining traits. That's what we learned last week, and that faithful followers of Christ will be members of his church and obey his commandments therein. Today we're going to look at how God has ordained and established um, all these various and distinct institutions which make up his creational order, and that Christ governs with all authority every sphere of life, and all must submit to his lordship in them, believers and not. Um, So the goal of the lesson today is for us to explore the civil sphere of life here under the sun and our duties as Christians who live in submission to the Lordship of Christ in the society in which he's placed us. Uh, Disclaimer, as we get started, this is my sort of personal bent. I resonate uh, wholeheartedly with the psalmist in Psalm 146 when he writes, Put not your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their breath departs, they return to the ground, and on that very day their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Chuck Colson aptly said once, the kingdom of God will not arrive on Air Force One. So that is my summary uh, uh, bent in perspective. Know that going in. But as we look at our calling lived out in society, we have necessary questions, things that come up that we have to understand. Um, how are we supposed to live? And we live here in the United States of America, which is a constitutional republic. And um, in that constitution, we have various amendments. The First Amendment of the Constitution reads... Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, 
or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So that settles it. Let's all just go home. Um, <clears throat> in almost any discussion uh, about politics and faith, Christians today are immediately met with the resounding proclamation of a separation between church and state. Right? Turn on. Doesn't matter if it's Fox or CNN. <clears throat> Where did such a concept come from? While uh, most may not be able to give a citation, it's generally referenced as a summary of the First Amendment in a letter written by Thomas Jefferson in 1802 to the Danbury Baptist Association in Connecticut. It's published in the newspaper there. It says this, Gentlemen, the affectionate sentiments of esteem and approbation which you were so good as to express towards me on behalf of the Danbury Baptist Association give me the highest satisfaction. My duties dictate a faithful and zealous pursuit of the interests of my constituents, and in proportion, as they are persuaded of my fidelity to those duties, the discharge of them becomes more and more pleasing. Good politician. Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislator should, quote, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation in behalf of the rights of the conscience, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore to man all his natural rights, convinced he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. He even goes on to say, I, I reciprocate your kind prayers for the protection and blessing of the common father and creator of man, and tender you <clears throat> for yourselves and your religious association assurances of my high respect and esteem. So even the, the, the deist Thomas Jefferson, who um, you know, secularists like to point to as the guy who kind of wanted to pick and choose parts, parts of the Bible that he adhered to, uh, nonetheless recognizes that um, religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God. And he uh, summarizes the First Amendment by saying, thus building a wall of separation between the church and state. Was that sentiment novel to Thomas Jefferson? Was that a new thing, or did that come from somewhere? Where did he get such an idea? And where did the framers, for that matter, of the Constitution come up with the notion that Congress should not make laws on establishing religion or prohibiting its free exercise? It may surprise some of you to know, maybe not, um, that it is not some secular humanistic concoction designed to elevate man above self, though they absolutely uh, try to abuse it to that end now. No, the idea of separating the institutions of the church from the institution of the state came from none other than the creator of those institutions himself, God himself. In the world in which we live, God has instituted... Four governments. <clears throat> you can see them on your uh, handout. James is so dutifully passed out or, or in the midst thereof. Under God, there are four unique governments. One is foundational and three are institutional. So the foundational is self-government. <clears throat> God has made mankind in his image, and as such, all of humanity has an innate capacity to act with free agency over their individual lives. 
I picked this pretty good shirt, you know, this morning. I had my cup of coffee made just the way I wanted. We were able to, to act in that way. Due to the fall, however, that agency is corrupted. All people are born as slaves to sin. They cannot do good. Romans 14, 23 says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And the man without faith or the unregenerate man has no capacity to to act in faith. But God has made a way for us to be freed from sin in Christ. Romans 6 says, Our old self was crucified with him so that we would not, uh, not longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And... God has given us his Holy Spirit who produces fruit in us, which includes self-control. But the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law. So we have this capacity to self-govern in terms of our own sphere of existence, our life. This freedom is the foundation of all liberty, and it's why we need to pursue the redemptive mandate of the Great Commission in order to be able to fulfill the cultural mandate of creation. We talked about that some weeks ago. The redemptive mandate in the Great Commission says, Go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Christ had commanded. Right? <clears throat> because you can't truly live out your calling in, a, in an effectual way, in a righteous way, in a total way, Unless and until you are submitted to Christ as Lord over all. Anything not done from faith is sin. Now, does God use sinful people? Of course he does. The Bible promises us that he'll make our enemies a footstool under our feet. So he doesn't just defeat them, but they actually are used by him to serve us. What, what you intended for evil, God intended for good, right? <clears throat> He's God. He can do all kinds of wonderful things. But it's the freedom in Christ that is the foundation for all liberty. John Adams, the second president of the United States, famously said, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly unfit for any other. Uh, Slaves to sin cannot establish and maintain free institutions. Only slaves to Christ have that liberty. So that's the first government, self-government. The second government is family government. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. God established the institution of the family in Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus affirms this and further explains its continuity, that it cannot be abolished, in Matthew 19, 6, where he says, So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This institution has a government with members and officers in a God-ordained authority structure. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I want you to understand that that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This is an institution that God set up. It has a government in itself with members and officers and a God-ordained authority structure. And the duties of this institution include, we mentioned some of these before, this is just summary for today, Education, training up of your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Welfare, food, clothing, shelter, health care. Industry, earning a livelihood, working to provide for your family. And stewardship, managing resources, owning property, and even leaving an inheritance. All those things are 
facets and functions of this sphere, this government. And the third is the church government. Jesus is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And Jesus, our head, gave gifts to men to grow his church. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So this institution also has a government with members and officers in a God-ordained authority structure. Hebrews 13, 17 one of many that could point to it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The duties of this institution of the church government include the preaching and teaching of apostolic doctrine, the faithful administration of the sacraments, which we believe the Bible says are baptism and the Lord's Supper, and practicing biblical church discipline to keep the church purified and to focus on a ministry of restoration and reconciliation, the marks of the church. So self-government, family government, church government, and civil government. <clears throat> God established the civil government just as he established all structures of authority. <clears throat> Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Period. Colossians 1.16 also says, For by him, meaning Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So God has established all authorities. These seem simple, but think through your day. Think through what you're watching on the TV. Think through your scrolling through your feeds and you're reading the newspaper. How easy it is to forget that. When, when election cycle starts coming up, are we remembering this? Is, is this what comes to mind? Not at all, right? We get all worked up. We get twisted in our guts. And how are we going to be able to save ourselves by getting the right guy in there who's going to dictate all the good things that we want for our team and all that? <clears throat> but we need to remember that God is in control of all things, including the civil government. God commands his people who unwaveringly confess Jesus alone as Lord to submit to these authority structures which Christ has ordained. So, Jesus is Lord, period, none other. Jesus curios, not Caesar. <clears throat> but Romans 10 says us that if you, um, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're going to be saved. Okay, Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ alone. And 1 Peter 2.13-17 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. This institution, too, has a government with members and officers 
in a God-ordained authority structure. You can see those verses above as reference. Instead of members, we call them citizens. And instead of officers, you might hear things like rulers or kings or princes or presidents, magistrates, etc. The duties of this institution include executing justice, punishing evil, protecting the innocent. All of these governments are established by God, and he is the source of their individual authority and responsibility. While they interact with one another, they may not encroach on one another's jurisdiction without violating God's law. I don't have the capacity as the father of my home to sentence someone to execution. But the state does. And the governor of Georgia does not have the authority under God to administer the sacraments. But the pastors of his church do. Um, We interact with one another, but there are defined lines that God has put forth in terms of what are responsibilities and what authority accompanies those. And we don't get to cross those over. But the interesting thing is that as individual Christians, might we exist in some form in all three of those institutions? Sure. I'm a, uh, you know, I'm I'm an elder here, an officer at Carriage Lane. And so in session, we might have a vote on how to appropriately administer the sacraments or do church discipline or something that's been given authority in the sphere of the church. And then I go home and I hear that my daughter was disobedient and I have to you know, discipline her in the sphere of my home, govern that. And then I may go to a um, you know, precinct meeting or something where I'm going to be a chair and try to um, have influence over who's going to be elected to be our next whatever, representative or something like that. <clears throat> but I don't get to have... Just because I have authority in this sphere doesn't mean I automatically do in another, and vice versa. Um, so while they interact with one another, they may not encroach on one another's jurisdiction without violating God's law. There are other governments and institutions which exist in our world that are not directly established by God like these. They're established by man. You can think of examples. I work for one. You know, I have a boss. There's an authority structure. Um, There are associations, community organizations, all kinds of things. But uh, these do not have God's unshakable and sovereign upholding like those that he's directly instituted. These are man-made institutions that can be abolished. God's institutions cannot be. Despite how much maybe the state wants the family to go away, and they're doing all they can to make policies and pressure people to undermine the authority of the the family. as much as governments may try to thwart the strength of Christ's church, certainly happens um, historically and around the world today in varying degrees. But no one will abolish that which God has instituted and upholds. We can rest in that. He's sovereign. There's actually, um, this is not in my notes. So I, I've got, I think I'm making good time. Um, there's a story in, in uh, I don't have my Bible with me, of course not, Acts 27, I think, where, uh, where Paul is uh, on the ship, storm comes up, 
Um, and things are getting all, all shaky, and he, everybody, everybody's worried that he gets this um, word from the Lord, and he prophesies, don't worry, we're all going to make it, everything's just fine. Um, no, no, not one soul will be lost. Um, but like the next paragraph, people are starting to get panicky, and they're starting to throw things off, and he says, do not jump off of this ship, or we're going to drown and die. So how do those things go together? Because Paul knew that if a prophet gives a prophecy that's not true, if he speaks on behalf of God and it turns out to be false, he'll be stoned to death. He'll die. <clears throat> so that he certainly believed it when he said that God has said, we're going to all be, we're all going to be safe. But then he also says, hey, stop, don't jump off the boat because we're all going to be safe. We all got to make it. So how can those two things reconcile? It's because <clears throat> God is sovereign over all things, and yet we have real responsibility, real duty in the callings that God's placed us. And so while I believe wholeheartedly that God in his goodness and his sovereignty and his, you know, his, own, his own manifest will will not allow any of his institutions to be thwarted by any other. And yet, I believe that I have a duty to do all that I can within the power that God's given me to work to that end. He's going to accomplish it. He's going to do it. I don't have to worry about it. I can sleep soundly at night. And, not but, I should be involved in any way that I can in supporting legislations. It's going to make sure that the church has its free exercise thereof in our land. Making sure that policy is going to be family friendly and it's not going to I'm trying to undermine what God has instituted as this core government. So, both things. Um, we don't have time to do a history review of sort of how this has gone off the rails over time, but you can you know, just think back to sort of the schisms that occurred in Europe between uh, the power of the Pope and the power of the state and how they crossed paths and tried to, and it was out of the Reformation that we see some of the delineation that we, we believe to be true. They, they fiddled with the Bible once the Bible was in the hands of all men and they could start understanding it better and reforming back to what Scripture had always taught um, to, to delineate these fears. And one, one place where you can see this clearly is in uh, a book called Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford. Uh, Reformation Scotland writes this of Rutherford. They say, he was born in 1600, died in 1661. Samuel Rutherford was one of the foremost Scottish theologians and apologists for Presbyterianism in the 17th century, playing a major role in the formulating of the Westminster Standards at the Westminster Assembly. He's best known for his many devotional letters and Lex Rex, his seminal work on political sovereignty. Here's a blurb from a publisher who just recently reprinted it. <clears throat> when Lex Rex was written, the Reformation in England and Scotland was in crisis. The English Civil War had just begun after Charles I tried to impose popish rituals on the church and asserted his divine right as king to overrule Parliament. Against these grandiose claims, the Scottish pastor Samuel Rutherford wrote a book and changed Western political philosophy forever as it led to the thinking that enabled the American Revolution. In his very learned work, Rutherford shows from Scripture from classical authors and scholastic theologians, that the king is not above the law and that when the king violates it flagrantly, the people are right to resist him, even to the point of war. The title Rex Lex, I mean Lex Rex, is Latin for law is king versus the divine right of king's idea that the king was above the law. <clears throat> 
So here's a summary uh, of the content of that book, just through four questions and answers. You've got the questions there. What is the purpose of government? The glory of God and the well-being of the people in both outward and spiritual terms. Purpose of government is the glory of God and the well-being of the people, both outwardly and in spiritual terms. Who or what brings government into being? It's brought into being by God and the people by means of a contract or covenant. What is the nature of government? Government involves declaring, applying, and enforcing the law. What are the limits on government? Government cannot go beyond God's law and command what is contrary to it or abuse the people. This is what we believe. And his influence is fleshed out in our confessional standards. Um, they're pretty succinct. I want to I read through some to you. It won't take that long. I know um, reading long chunks of anything in a class is not ideal, and I don't have the best voice, and it can be boring, and it's hot in here, and it's early, and all these things. So, um, but listen to this. This is 400 years of you know, wisdom, and, and it's, um, it's a good summary of what we believe. From the Westminster Standards, chapter 23, of the civil magistrate. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, has ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his own glory and the public good. And to this end, he's armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. He does not bear the sword in vain. Deacon of God's wrath, Romans 12 and 13. Um, point number two, it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto. You may be the next governor if you, you know, so choose to pursue that calling and God ordains that it, you get elected. Wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, but, you know, <clears throat> pray for him. Um, so you may do that. Um, when called thereunto, in the managing whereof, as they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. So, for that end, they may lawfully, now under the New Testament, wage war upon just and necessary occasion. We do believe in just war theory. I, in my um, you know, officership in my family, do not have the authority to go to war. Can't do that. Even in my role as an elder here at Carriage Lane, do not have the authority to go to war. Um, but the state does. And if I were the commander-in-chief, may that never be the case, uh, I would have that authority. But not to, on a whim, because I wanted to go and you know, beat up on somebody that I didn't like, but under just circumstances in accordance with the law of God and by certain standards. Um, maybe one day we'll have a class on just war. That'd be good. Um, point three, civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments. We've mentioned that. The governor can't give you communion. Or the power of the keys of the kingdom. Or, in the least, interfere in the matters of faith. Yet, as nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest, in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty 
of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. And, as Jesus Christ has appointed a regular government and discipline in his church, no law of any commonwealth should interfere with, let, or hinder the due exercise thereof among the voluntary members of any denomination of Christians according to their own profession and belief. It is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the person and good name of all their people in such an effectual manner as that no person be suffered either upon pretense of religion or of infidelity to offer any indignity, violence, abuse, or injury to any other person whatsoever, and to take order that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without molestation or disturbance. They're supposed to keep the peace. You can disagree with other assemblies that gather together, but you can't go bomb them or shoot them or cut them up. And we, we take that for granted. That's not the case around the world. Read the voice of the martyrs. There are, there are, there are places in this world today where there is a real threat when Christians gather. When they assemble as they're called to. Do, the command in Hebrews, do not give up meeting together as some are like to do. That's way easy for us. There's a church on the, I passed seven on the way here from my house. And I've never had a knife to my throat for walking in the door. But there are many that may well lose their lives as they gather on the Lord's day, week by week, to worship Him in other parts of our world. We are blessed to be called to be citizens of this United States, these United States. <clears throat> Point four in uh, the civil magistrate here. It is the duty of people, us, to pray for magistrates, <clears throat> to honor their persons, to pay them tribute or other dues, to obey their lawful commands and to be subject to their authority for conscience sake. Infidelity, <clears throat> oh, Conscience sake, if you are ever curious, you can read through Calvin's Institutes. He really goes into a lot of detail about what that means. Can the, can the state bind my conscience? No. But when Paul says for conscience sake, what he's meaning is God has ordained that institution. And so for conscience sake, you're going to obey it, not because the governor or the president or whomever has the ability to binds you into doing certain things against your conscience, but because God has told you to obey him. So in accordance with God and his law, that's where your conscience is bound, not, not by the state. It's a bigger point than maybe that, that sounded like when we were going through it. All right, so there, um, we're all called to pray for them, honor their persons, pay them tribute and other dues, pay your taxes, um, to obey their lawful commands and to be subject to their authority for conscience's sake. <clears throat> Infidelity or difference in religion does not make void the magistrate's just legal and legal authority, nor free people from their due obedience to them. So uh, if the governor of Georgia is not a faithful Presbyterian Church of America member, I still have to obey him in his office. <clears throat> doesn't matter that he's, even if he were, you know, something far removed from, from my own religious belief. Um, all right, so we're not exempted from that, much less has the Pope any power or jurisdiction over them in their dominions or over any of their people, and least of all to deprive them of their dominions or lives if he shall judge them to be heretics or upon any other pretense whatsoever. Can't blur the lines between the church and the state. 
There's one line also in the, um, in the Westminster Confession where it's talking about church government, not civil government, but it relates. And it's on synods and councils. It's the fourth paragraph in that chapter. And it says, synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that. This is talking about churches. When we gather, when our general assembly comes together, we're not supposed to deal with anything but that which is ecclesiastical, churchy, um, and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. So it is perfectly okay if the magistrate says... um, Maybe the president, God willing, one day we'll have one that would, that would do this. There's threat of war, and he wants to know whether or not it's just to go to war. And so he's got his Bible open, and he calls help of the church and says, help me to understand these are the circumstances. Would you give me advice? Is what I'm doing right before God? That would be perfectly okay then for the church to say yay or nay, give advice, counsel. <clears throat> if uh, the government, a magistrate... Um, sets forth a um, an immoral or an evil law, something that's contrary to God's word. It is perfectly okay and in your purview um, as individual Christians to speak against that. And it's okay for the church to equip you with the word of God to know what's right and wrong and to be able to do that in your, in your own self. Um, Westminster Larger Catechism also touches on this when it talks about, you know, the Lord's Prayer. um, God says, the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. What what does that mean? What all is included in that? Uh, In the second petition, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. The gospel propagated throughout the world. The Jews called, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, the church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate, and the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual in the converting of those who are yet in their sins, and so forth. Part of what we want to see God's kingdom come um, is that the church be free to do the work that God's called her to, and part of her freedom and ability to do that un cumbered or unhindered is that the civil magistrate, the government, would not impose any kind of restrictions or would not allow for, you know, um, war to break out in the middle of the bubble here, you know. Um, the keepers of the peace allow us to, to come and gather and to do what God's called us to do. I can't be faithful in gathering with you if, if a bomb's going off right here, right? And so we, that's what we pray for when we pray for his kingdom to come. All right, but what happens when you have bad government? Right? Not everything's roses. Not everything's the ideal. <clears throat> How many of you have heard of R.C. Sproul? I'm looking here. Everybody, right? How many of you heard of Francis Schaeffer? If you're a little older. Okay, good. Well, R.C. once um, spoke to him sort of in the latter years of his life, and he, he writes about it this way. He says, about 30 years ago, I shared a taxi cab in St. Louis with Francis Schaefer. I had known Dr. Schaefer for many years, and he had been instrumental in helping us begin our ministry in Ligonier, Pennsylvania, in 1971. Since our time together in St. Louis was during the twilight of Schaefer's career, 
I posed this question to him, Dr. Schaefer, what is your biggest concern for the future of the church in America? Without hesitation, Dr. Schaefer turned to me and spoke one word, statism. Schaefer's biggest concern at that point in his life was that the citizens of the United States were beginning to invest their country with supreme authority such that the free nation of America would become one that would be dominated by a philosophy of the supremacy of the state rather than the supremacy of Christ. Maybe it'll come up in our questions if we have time for this. So um, we are hit with a lot of, there are a lot of ideas out there. You know, I don't know that, I don't know that you can have any particular stance, even one that would align with our confession, and you can walk into any church in America and say, this is what I believe, and you delineate it, you know, with any kind of precision and have everyone agree with you. It just, you know, we're all fallen, the noetic effects of sin, we're all, you know, we can't even reason right, um, we can, multiple people can claim the name of Christ and have differing opinions on how uh, to interpret his word, how that gets applied in life. There is, uh, I don't have this in my notes, but there's uh, something you should be familiar with if you're not. Uh, the idea of when we, when we talk about, as the way Schaefer said, you know, people are, um, he, he fears that, that American Christians would see the state as supreme rather than Christ, um, that, that Christ's kingdom would be undermined. And the way that people even understand what the kingdom of God is has variance and difference. Um, I've got like nine pages of notes. I wanted to go over that with you guys today, but I knew we couldn't do it. So maybe that'll be some other addendum. But you should know, coming out of the Protestant Reformation, even before St. Augustine's City of God talks about the City of God and City of Man, that's really more about believers and not but it, but it has some roots that, 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 that came out into thinking um, that Calvin and Knox and others fleshed out in the Reformation. The historic view of two kingdoms, we, we look at the what does the Bible say about the kingdom of God, and we think about it in terms of two, two kingdoms. Um, historically, that would mean the internal and the external. Jesus, um, actually, I may have... I may have a little bit here that I can, that I can read to you, but um, the internal and the external. So what goes on in the hearts of men is the, is the internal kingdom, and then everything else that lives in space and time is the external. Um, the church pulpit is part of external as much as the, the halls of Congress. Okay? But the soul and the heart of the pastor is part of the internal in the same way that the soul and the heart of the governor is. <clears throat> There's a novel, newer um, redefinition of what the two kingdoms are to mean in our world today, and it, it largely comes out of Westminster West and Escondido. Um, you'll read um, very sincere, very learned, far, far wiser and smarter than me, uh, men like Michael Horton and David Van Drunen, um, older than that, even Meredith Klein, R. Scott Clark. Um, these are men who would hold to 
uh, what's often called R2K or radical two kingdoms. So rather than the historic two kingdom view, internal, external, they have um, it shifted in their thinking in, in more of a, this separation of church and state idea. And so they, they see the two kingdoms as essentially civil and spiritual. So the church and then everything that's not church. <clears throat> and that leads to a lot of, um, well, that leads to a lot of damage, damaging conclusions. If Christ is Lord over all, um, there is, there's an idea within radical two kingdom doctrine, theology, that, um, that the two kingdoms are, are, they serve different functions to different ends and, and operate by different rules. And they would say that the church is governed by God's special revelation in the scriptures and that the civil kingdom or the non-church kingdom is governed by natural law. So what, what is it that you can look, know and understand about what's true in natural law rather than, you know, so when, when you're going up to the, the capital or whatever to say, you know, abortion is wrong. We don't think that you should murder babies. And they say, why? Um, I would say, because God said, thou shalt not kill on Mount Sinai. Uh, but a radical two kingdom guy would say, you can't use the Bible because not everybody there believes in the Bible. They don't hold to that. And so you got to try to make a case for what you can see from nature around you and those kind of things. Um, and there's some distinctions between the idea of natural law and natural revelation. These are just terms I just want you to be familiar with if you get starting to get into, into some deeper reading or conversations. Natural, natural revelation <clears throat> is something that um, I'm, I'm far more comfortable with. It, um, it seems to be what Romans 1 points us to in terms of how do we know things. Uh, God essentially reveals conclusive truths about himself from the creation that he made. So much so that Paul says in Romans 1 that all men are without excuse because he has clearly revealed himself, his nature, his divine characteristics, and all those things um, from, from the creation that he made. Aquinas, who was, again, much smarter than me and came along um, sometime, he, he, he's more in the natural law camp that says really what that is is God has put forth reflective, you know, truths of himself throughout all of creation, but you need to really take your reason and, and rationalize and assess and analyze and pull together these conclusions and these truths. And that's how uh, in this non-church sphere that doesn't have direct and clear teaching from Scripture uh, as its authority, you can pull together. And so, so you're going to kind of argue and debate and try and convince people based off of conclusions that they might draw from evidences around you in the world. But, um, but we believe that uh, you know, the wisdom of the world is foolish. And you can only see through those that have redeemed hearts. And spiritual truths only make sense to those with the Spirit and all those things. And so from, a, what is, you know, from, from the way that I see by the Bible teaching um, how we know what we know, I, I, don't, I don't think that that's cogent. Um, but those are, some of the th those are some of the issues that you're going to find out there. And so when you start talking to people, your neighbors who aren't believers or even people in other churches or <clears throat> books you're going to read, you're going to hear all kinds of angles on how is it that we're supposed to um, think about the 
the world around us? How are we supposed to think about politics as Christians? Um, I think that it's helpful to have, to kind of take a step back and, I don't know that I have any kind of way of uh, proving this other than just, just my, my framework and paradigm. I, I believe that <clears throat> politics are downstream from culture and that culture is downstream from worship. So what it is that we worship and serve is going to influence everything about our lives and that's going to manifest itself in the culture that we may have a culture. I have a subculture in my, my own household, my family. There's a culture here at Carriage Lane. There's a culture broader, Peachtree City, Fayette County, Georgia, and so forth. All these, <clears throat> but it's based off of what, what do we believe and what do we worship? What do we serve? What do we hold as God? That's going to that's gonna be the lens through which we live and work and think and do all these things. And so worship will flow down into our culture. And it's out of culture then that politicians poll and find out what's important and what can I get away with and who can convince me to give me power and all those kind of things. And so it's downstream. Um, so I don't think that the way to um, pursue the kingdom is by trying to get your dude in, in office and to, by the sword, force people to believe the way you do. And that's not what Scripture teaches. You should vote for the man or, or woman who is going to um, most adhere in principle to the, um, to the duty and callings of that office that God has put forth in that institution. So making sure that we're going to have the peaceful exercise of our religion within this world. That's all right. I want to vote for that person. Um, but that person's not going to save us. That person's not going to bring about some new Christendom. No, Christ is Lord. And he says that we don't fight the way that the world fights. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but we cast down arguments. We convince people based off of the truth. We tear down every thought that's lobbied against the truth of Christ. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so um, when Revelation shows Jesus coming back with this great sword, it's a sword out of his mouth, not off of his hip. It's the sword of his word, the sword of the spirit. <clears throat> it's the proclamation of the gospel that is going to bring about change in this world <clears throat> so that all of Christ's enemies will be made a footstool under his feet. This is what's been promised, right? Um, Psalm 2, Psalm 1. Let me, let, me, let me read you a little. Eh, I don't have time for that. Okay, let me get back to this. <clears throat> I'll finish up with what I wanted to finish up, and maybe we'll have time for questions. <clears throat> Fleshing this out a little bit more, there's a book called Ruler of Kings Toward a Vision for, uh, uh, Towards a Christian Vision for Government by Joseph Boot of the uh, Ezra Institute out of Canada. <clears throat> he says this, There is then only one truly Christian view of government and politics that is consistent with the gospel of the kingdom, and it involves believers in a critical struggle against our era. As Evan Runner insightfully articulated, Evan Runner was a, <clears throat> I think a, Westminster professor and Vantillion, and he says this. The Christian political task involves calling a halt to the expansionist or totalitarian politics that emerge in the, line, <clears throat> in the life of the state where men do not live by the light of the word of God and having lost almost all sense of sphere sovereignty, find themselves with a leveled view of the state and society that knows no limits ordained from above, but only more or less arbitrary limits put on by popular will or the ruler. Here's a problem in the modern world 
which is overcome by the Christian religion. The modern political mind, in the modern political mind, who is there to call the state to order? The meaning of the office in human life has largely been lost. Every man carries the ultimate light around within himself, in his reason, and thus has an equal right to every other to say what the state shall do. This is, that's democracy, that's, that's Gnosticism. You've got this special you know, light inside of you. <clears throat> but in the light of scriptural revelation, who can better call the state to order than the man who knows himself called to order by the high God? than the man who trembles before the sovereign law word of God. The Christian political task is thus concerned with the inner reformation of political life itself as an aspect of the integral renewal of our whole life in obedience to the, to the divine word of salvation. All that to say, if you want to see change in Peachtree City or Fayette County or Georgia or the United States of America, witness to your neighbors. Tell them about Jesus Christ. Pray for them. Help them to understand the truth. And all those who the Father have given to Christ, all those who are called to be His, will become His in His good time. And their hearts will be changed. And out of that change in their hearts, they will live a different way, in the same way that you and I do, because He's changed our hearts. And when all of God's people do that faithfully, then you'll see fruit of the kingdom. Then you'll see the kingdom come upon you. There are uh, other things that you should be familiar with because governments can seek their own, you know, Leviathan hates competition and, um, and the state will seek to uh, thwart all of its enemies. So how, what are we supposed to do if a totalitarian regime um, tries to impose swift injustice upon us? Well, the Reformers also worked out a doctrine of the lesser magistrates. I'm going to read a little bit about that from Matthew uh, Trueheller's book. The lesser magistrate doctrine declares that when the superior or higher civil authority makes unjust, immoral laws or decree, the lesser or lower-ranking civil authority has both a right and a duty to refuse obedience to that superior. If necessary, the lesser authorities even have the right and obligation to actively resist the superior authority. So, for example, if Congress, the President, or the Supreme Court makes an unjust or immoral law or decree, a state legislature or a governor could stand in defiance of their unjust law or decree and refuse to obey and implement it. Those lesser magistrates could, in fact, actively oppose such a law or decree. Even a city council or mayor could appropriately defy an unjust law and decree handed down by a higher authority. Historically, he says, the practice of the church has been that when the state commands that which God forbids, or when the state forbids that which God commands, men have a duty to obey God rather than men. Acts 5.26 gives us a picture of this. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set... Uh, then before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? And look, you fill Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. When you tell me I can't preach in Christ's name, I do not obey that because we're to obey God rather than men. Let God be true, though all men are liars, Paul says. 
Lastly, good book. We've been referencing some so far. Gene Veith, God at Work. He's a Lutheran scholar, and he talks about how this calling has worked out in all these different spheres. And for us specifically as Americans, he talks about citizens in a free country and and some of the uniqueness there. Let me get get you to that. Just as there are many kinds of nations in the world, each with his own laws, there are many kinds of rulers, emperors, kings, tribal chieftains. These are all offices Christians are enjoined to obey. There is another kind of ruler, though, the kind found in the United States and other democratic systems. And this gives Romans 13 a special twist for Americans and others who live under a democratic republic. Our governing officials are not imposed on us from above. Rather, we elect our governing officials. Ultimately, we rule them. In a democratic system, the people rule. Their leaders are accountable to the system, to the citizens who enact laws through their elected representatives or and who are endowed by their laws with the task of self-government. Those who've been blessed by a calling to live in the United States or any other free country have a more complicated vocation of citizenship than to those living under a monarchy. In a democratic society, citizens are still subjects, but at the same time, they are rulers. An American president is indeed a governing authority to which we should submit, but he's by no stretch of the principles a king. We should submit to the office in that we obey the laws he is supposed to execute, but he cannot require citizens to do whatever he commands. Our Constitution does not give him that power. He is neither the source of the law nor the interpreter of the law. The public elects the president from a field of candidates. Submission to his authority cannot include always voting for him nor can it mean refusing to criticize him. In our legal and political system, the people must assess the president's performance and that of other elected officials. Otherwise, it would be impossible to have a democratic republic. Almost done. Those called to be American citizens, therefore, have a Romans 13 obligation to take an active part in their government. Christians should indeed obey the laws, pay the taxes, and honor, and even pray for their governing rulers. Feelings of patriotism and acts of civic-mindedness are fitting responses to the blessings God has given us in this country and to the citizenship to which he has called us. But the calling to citizenship also includes active involvement in our nation and in our government, voting, debating issues, grassroots politics, and civic activism. Christians who mobilize for pro-life causes, even when this means criticizing officials and working to change laws, are acting in their divine vocation as citizens. Christians who, like the prophets, challenge the evils in their societies, including those uh, perpetrated by their officials or their institutions, are acting in their divine vocations as citizens. So, so are Christians, uh, so are Christians running for the local school board, demonstrating at the state house, going to precinct meetings, and voting for the candidate who best reflects their beliefs. Last thing. This emphatically does not mean turning the church into a political action committee or confusing the spiritual work of the gospel with the political arm of the state. Christian political activism falls under the vocation of citizenship, not the vocation of faith. And it is important not to confuse the different callings. But Christians are called to be engaged not just in government, but in their cultures as a whole, working through their various vocations to make their country, if only in a small way, a better place for their neighbors. Because why? Because we are to love our neighbors and our callings, wherever we are. And God has called us to these United States to be citizens thereof. And we need to do what we can do to love our neighbors 
And sometimes that includes defying tyrants. <laughs> but most of the time it includes preaching the gospel, living a quiet life, not causing trouble, and all those things. Um, any questions before we wrap up and pray? Since I pushed late, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just wrap us in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your grace and your love for us. Thank you for um, your word, which equips us for every good work, every good endeavor, for every sphere of life. Help us to understand it better and be faithful to it in our callings. Be with us now as we go to worship you. Help us to do so in spirit and truth. We love you, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.